Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. In today's podcast, I talked with Dr. Alan Rubin about research and social work practice. You might recognize the name Rubin from the widely used social work research text, Rubin and Babby, or as it is officially known, Research Methods for Social Work. In addition to the Rubin and Babby text, Alan Rubin has authored well over 100 publications, most recently focusing on evidence-based practice. Since so many of us have learned research from the Rubin and Babby text, myself included, I thought it would be appropriate to interview Alan Rubin for the very first social work podcast on social work research. I'm excited about offering a series on social work research because research is essential to good social work practice. Most practitioners I know have an impressive command of assessment, diagnosis, intervention, and the myriad of factors that go into providing services to clients. These same practitioners get fairly lost in even the most basic research articles and couldn't distinguish an ANOVA from a logistic regression to save their life. And full disclosure, I had a really hard time doing that too before I went back for my PhD. So I thought I would take this opportunity to find out what research concepts Alan Rubin thought were essential for social work practitioners to understand. During our interview, Alan made it clear that there are at least an entire textbook's worth of research concepts that social workers should know. He was kind enough, though, to identify and define a few concepts that he thought social workers needed to understand in order to be informed consumers of empirical research. These included reliability and validity, sources of error and measurement, and researcher and respondent bias. He also talked about these concepts within the framework of evidence-based practice and distinguished the process of evidence-based practice from evidence-based practices. And now, on to the interview with Dr. Alan Rubin on social work research for practitioners. So, Alan, thanks so much for being here and talking with us today about social work and research. And uh, first question, how did you get into research? Well, I um, got my a master's degree uh, a long, long time ago with a major in community organization. I wanted to be like Barack Obama. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know Barack Obama in those days, of course. Uh, but I wanted to do pretty much the same thing that he was doing uh, when he first started out. I uh, ended up getting a job in a community mental health program. Um, and I was doing uh, various community outreach mental health kinds of work, and they also uh, wanted me to learn how to be a family therapist, and they were training me uh, to be a family therapist. We were being told at that time, this was back in the very early 1970s, uh, actually it was right around 1970, we are being told that um, we should view all uh, mental health problems as uh, family problems, that there were no sick individuals, there were only sick families. And as we now, and we were, uh, there were no exceptions to that, even for things like schizophrenia. And as we now know, um, that's way off, that's wrong and that's harmful. But at the time, that's what uh, we were being taught. I was being trained in that. 
I remember sitting in the uh, in-service training session with two very prestigious psychiatrists. Uh, and after being in the training for, for quite a few weeks, if not months, and hearing much of their lectures, hear, seeing their videos, reading their materials, and so on, I got the courage amidst a, a room full of psychiatric residents to ask a question, which was uh, basically uh, what scientific evidence they had that this stuff that they were uh, telling us to do was really effective. And one of the psychiatrists responded by simply gazing at me, rubbing his beard, being silent for a moment, and then uh, sort of looking around to the others and then at me and then saying uh, something to the effect of that I should uh, look inward to think about what uh, personal insecurities I have that uh, would prompt me to need such certainty. So he tried to do a little psychoanalysis on you there in the moment. Right. He tried uh, to defend his own lack of evidence for what he was teaching by turning, trying to make me the problem. So that was one of quite a few things that were that I was experiencing and observing in those days, one, or, one year or so after getting my MSW, that uh, made me feel that, uh, you know, I really want to um, go back and get my PhD and learn how to do evaluation research to uh, uh, see what really helps people and whether this stuff that we were being taught is really helpful and, and so on. And of course, as uh, most people in our field now know, research that was just beginning to come out at around that time and, and really blossomed throughout the 1970s and 1980s showed that uh, calling families of people with schizophrenia the cause of the schizophrenia uh, it was not only helpful, but it was harmful. And, uh, I don't need to elaborate on that. I'm sure that uh, people already know about that stuff. But We actually did a podcast. I interviewed uh, Carol Anderson, yeah, um, about psychoeducation. Right, yeah. At any rate, I think that's kind of you know interesting that the, the question I asked was on that topic, and then all that research came out showing that stuff. At any rate, so that's how I got into research. That's I, I went back and got my PhD to learn how to how to do research. Okay, and you said evaluation research. Could you clarify um, for somebody who might not know what evaluation research is? What what that means? What, what some of the parameters are for what evaluation research is? Uh, yeah, it's pretty broad. And in fact, uh, in my book, I make the point that, you know, in its broadest definition, it's hard to distinguish evaluation research from just social work research. And back in the old days, most people thought of evaluation research as outcome research, evaluating the effectiveness of programs, policies, interventions, and so on. Uh, but it's really, and, and, and I still feel just personally that that's the most important part of evaluation research, um, but it's much broader than that, and it has to do with any kind of research that can be useful in informing practitioners, administrators, and so forth um, uh, about how to uh, uh, improve what they're doing, whether it's 
uh, it might have to do with um, monitoring um, uh, who's using their services, uh, uh, whether services are being implemented as intended. Uh, it might have to do with qualitative studies on processes and in, in programs. It might have to do with needs assessment. What do clients need? What, what are the needs in the community that aren't being met? So in other words, in addition to being used to evaluate whether programs are being effective, it could be used for the purpose of planning programs. What services should we provide? What needs are out there? Monitoring program implementation and so on uh, beyond just uh, evaluating outcome. And naturally, uh, if you only evaluate outcome and don't evaluate implementation, and it turns out that things aren't as effective as, as, as you had hoped, the question would, would be unanswered as to whether the lack of effectiveness has to do with the idea itself, the theory of the intervention. It may be a great idea, a great intervention that just wasn't implemented properly. So uh, evaluation research covers all of that, and uh, some of the best evaluation research um, looks simultaneously at implementation and outcome. So it sounds like it serves uh, at least those two purposes and probably others as well. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that evaluation research, as it is now defined, and you mentioned in your book, and I'm assuming you're referring to Ruben and Babby, the, the research text that, that most schools uh, use. Right. That evaluation research, the way it's defined now, is almost synonymous with social work research. Yes. And I was just wondering how you might distinguish social work research from research in other disciplines. Well, the easy answer is, is it's evaluative. <laughs> uh, you know, and what that means uh, uh, is that uh, social work research is guided by the needs of social work practice. It's meant to guide social work practitioners to give them the information they need to provide better services. It is not uh, generated by abstract theoretical questions, but rather by the practical needs of, of social work practitioners and agencies. Okay, so really uh, very practical research as opposed to maybe some of the other research that is done in other disciplines that might be considered uh, maybe fundamental research that doesn't have application, uh, specific applications that people can think of off the top of their heads. Right, but the boundaries are, are, are ambiguous. Uh, uh, people in psychiatry, psychology, nursing, counseling, and social work could all, for example, could all be doing a, a research on, for example, uh, whether uh, a particular form of uh, intervention for uh, to treat sexually abused kids is, is, is effective. Um, so, you know, that would certainly be social work research, but it would also be psychiatric research. It would also be psychological research. I think the, the main difference is that in fields like psychology, um, there's a greater likelihood that research might not be guided by, by uh, the practical questions. So there's, I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of overlap. Okay, sure. And, and that makes sense because I think ultimately all disciplines would say that we're just trying to help people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned that one of the things that seems to 
distinguish social work research or is a hallmark of social work research is that the research is there to help the practitioners to do their jobs better. And I was wondering if you could talk about what you think of as some of the most important research concepts that a social work practitioner should know about. Okay, and um, I let me uh, answer that in the framework of evidence-based practice. Okay, um, and what is evidence-based practice, if you could define that? Evidence-based practice is a process that in, um, involves approximately five steps. First, the practitioner identifies a, a question and a need for information that they have. What's the best way to... To, to intervene with a particular type of client, uh, how do I uh, uh, improve the utilization of my uh, shelter by homeless people, and so forth. I mean, there are an infinite number of possibilities. Uh, so it begins with a question. Uh, th then the second phase is searching, mainly through the internet, uh, data, professional literature databases, to find uh, solid uh, evidence, research evidence, that provides scientific uh, uh, evidence to guide uh, the answer to the question. Uh, the third phase is to appraise the quality of the evidence you find in terms of things like its validity and so forth. The fourth phase is integrating that appraisal and the evidence you find with your practice expertise and your knowledge of idiosyncratic client attributes because it just might be that the stuff with the best evidence isn't going to fit your client or maybe it doesn't fit what you're able to do and so you have to you have to say well that's nice that's plan a but it's not feasible or my client won't, won't go for that so i got to go to plan b and look for something else so in other words it's not just the research evidence itself that guides what you do, but it's the integration of the best evidence with your expertise, your practice expertise, and client attributes. And based on the integration of all that, you make decisions. You make decisions that, you know, can I go with plan A? If not, what's the next best thing I could do that might be more feasible and that may not have quite as good evidence as plan A? You know, it's still got some good evidence and I can do that, or you might even have to go to plan C. And then the final stage of the evidence-based practice process is monitoring the outcome, whether it's an intervention or a policy or administrative procedure or whatever it is, monitoring what happens to see if the desired outcome is achieved. It may be, for example, that the intervention with the best evidence uh, supporting it isn't going to work for your particular client. So it's important to not just implement the intervention and say, uh, that's it, but you got to see what happens. You've got you to evaluate and then perhaps modify what you're doing based on the outcome of the evaluation. So that's evidence-based practice, and that often gets confused with the plural term evidence-based practices, which refers not to the process but rather to a list of specific interventions that some people have found to have been supported by good evidence. Um, 
Like, for example, uh, dialectical behavior therapy is often cited as an evidence-based practice for women with self-harming behaviors who have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. Right. That would be an evidence-based practice among the list, but that's not what you're calling the process of evidence-based practice. Picking that is not necessarily the process of evidence-based practice. It's merely implementing something that has been identified as an evidence-based practice. Exactly. And it's the process that you go through that leads you to pick that or something else that is the evidence-based practice process. And that, that, that process definition fits the original intent of the evidence-based practice movement. But over the uh, years, it's gotten confused, particularly when managed care companies come to practitioners and says, and say, here is a list of seal of approval interventions, evidence-based practice interventions, or evidence-based practices that will reimburse you, you for. And then practitioners often misconstrue evidence-based practices being that list as opposed to a process that if they went through, might lead them to go back to, to that insurance company, that managed care company, and say, hold on, the evidence supporting you know, this particular intervention was based on studies that didn't involve any clients with comorbidity. And with comorbidity, there's evidence that maybe something else might be better and so forth. So yeah, it's real important to distinguish the process from the seal of approved lists, the list of seal of And and it really sounds like what you're talking about, about the evidence-based process. I mean, it it sounds like the research process. I mean, it sounds like, you know, you ask a question and you try and gather the evidence to find out what's been done before. And then you try and evaluate, you know, you you try something and you evaluate whether or not that's worked. I mean, that's, it, it sounds like the research process. Right. Except that you're not doing the original research. The process that you're going through is finding and appraising the research that others have done. Then, of course, you're implementing research techniques in the final stage when you're monitoring what happens after you uh, implement the uh, whatever it is that you decide to do. Now, that then sets the framework for your earlier question. You know, there's so many things to know, and here are the things that I think are really, really the most critical within the evidence-based practice context. That would be one, understanding measurement, validity, and reliability, understanding sources of error in measurement, things like social desirability biases, the way interviewers or researchers can bias um, respondents. Uh, in the answers they get, uh, how they can be biased in the ratings, and how, and how people can be biased in what they tell you. Uh, so understanding measurement bias, uh, sources of error in measurement, particularly bias, and understanding uh, the concepts of reliability and validity, so that if you uh, are engaged in the evidence-based practice process and you read a study you can accurately and critically appraise whether its results should be taken seriously or not given the measurement procedures that were used. For example, one of the early studies on EMDR uh, was based on a a therapist uh, continuously asking the client on a scale from zero to 10 how much distress they felt. And over a 90-minute interview, Having your therapist ask you that umpteen times is going to put a lot of pressure on you 
eventually to say uh, you're not nearly as distressed at the end of the interview uh, of the therapy session as you were at the beginning, even if you feel very distressed because to say otherwise would be to insult the therapist and to make yourself look like a failure as a client and like you're wasting your money. So that's one uh, example of how both the therapist and the client could be experiencing all kind of bias in responding as to whether the therapy is helping them. And that's an example of social desirability, for example? It's, it's social desirability bias on the part of the client, and there's another term on the part of the therapist that I think it's called experimenter expectancies, mm-hmm. um, uh, where, where the person that's collecting the data is, if not, if not explicitly, certainly implicitly uh, pressuring the client to, to give them the answers that they want to hear. So there's bias going on on both ends. And I cite that as, as an egregious example. Here's another egregious example. There was a study published not too long ago evaluating the outcome of the effectiveness of an intervention for, with kids that were, were delinquent. And one of the things they looked at was whether the intervention was successful in motivating the, motivating the kids to do their homework. These were uh, uh, kids who were at risk for delinquency. Maybe they were already referring to for delinquency. I'm, I'm not sure. I can't remember. But there was obviously reason to suppose that uh, these kids probably weren't going to do their homework very often without an intervention. And part of the intervention was to pay them, to give them a, a, a monetary reward for doing their homework. Now, how do you think the researchers collected data on whether the kids were really doing their, their homework, these kids that were being paid to do their homework. Well, I couldn't believe my eyes when I read the article. They simply asked them. <laughs> it was self-report with these delinquent kids who were getting paid to be part of the study. Yeah, and they were saying, yeah, well, you know, uh, they, were doing, they were doing their homework more after the behavioral intervention was implemented than before when they weren't getting paid. And that's another example of an egregious... Uh, bias. Now, I think it's important for social work practitioners to learn to distinguish between egregious or what I would call fatal flaws and minor flaws that that are more acceptable. And uh, so that's that's one area of measurement. The measurement, I think, that's real important that they understand these concepts of measurement error bias and so forth, uh, reliability, if, you, if you're ask, asking people from another culture uh, questions with language that they don't fully understand, you're going to get haphazard responses that don't mean anything because they don't understand the language. Uh, same thing if you're using big words with kids that they don't understand. They might say, yeah, I agree or I disagree or whatever, just to say something without really knowing what they're answering. So that's the reliability concept, the, the validity concept, and the bias concept in measurement. Real important. The other really critical uh, concept that I think they need to learn uh, is this concept called internal validity, which has to do with what's really causing what. When uh, a study is done to evaluate whether an intervention is effective and clients have improved from pre-test to post-test, uh, what really caused the improvement? If you go to uh, uh, survivors of Hurricane Katrina in the immediate aftermath of, of the disaster and assess, assess their trauma symptoms that they're experiencing at that time, 
and then compare that to how they're uh, how they're feeling a year or so later, you don't have to do any intervention to find out that 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 with time, most of them are going to be do, doing better. Now, some of them are going to get full blown chronic PTSD and not be doing better. But if you're uh, taking a, a representative sample of all Katrina survivors. Not everybody's going to have PTSD. Not everybody's going to get PTSD. But most of them, perhaps all of them, are going to have trauma symptoms in the immediate aftermath of the disaster. Trauma symptoms that, if they don't uh, develop into full-blown PTSD, are going to uh, ameliorate over time. Now, if you just do a pretest post-test study, and you and you supply some kind of trauma intervention, uh, you're going to find that they're doing better after they get your intervention. But what really caused it? Was it your intervention or was it merely the passage of time? Or was it other contemporaneous events such as family members, friends, and so forth from other uh, areas coming to their aid? And then there's this concept called statistical regression that uh, you could read my book about. I won't go into that here. Time does not permit that. So, So there's a whole slew of things that could be explaining why people are doing better after they receive an intervention or a program or a policy than they were doing before. And so when you, as a, as a practitioner engaged in evidence-based practice, looking at the research to see, hey, what really works, what's really effective, you need to be able to distinguish between those studies that adequately controlled for these alternative explanations uh, versus those studies that did not. And, and it means looking at this, whether they were internally valid, did they really control for those things? And as I said earlier, what measurement procedures did they use? How reliable and valid and unbiased and objective were those measurement procedures? So those are the things, I mean, there are many, many things to learn about research. But, but if I had to say, what are the two or three most critical things for practitioners to know, that's what I would say. And that's what I emphasize when I do continuing education workshops for practitioners on evidence-based practice. Well, I appreciate you um, distilling the thousands of concepts out out there down to perhaps the most important ones for practitioners to know. Because I know that there are a lot of practitioners that listen to this podcast, and I think sometimes the, the, the sheer number of research concepts can be overwhelming to folks in the field. So I, I appreciate that. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.